0: Hi! How's it going? I'm back. Hello and welcome back to our second and last part of this mini series, courtesy of John Carr and Timma Milstein, and Arts 1241 Environmental Advocacy and Activism from the University of New South Wales. If you haven't yet heard part one, I'd advise you to stop now and listen to that before continuing. You can find it next to this episode in the Climactic feed on your podcast app or from climactic.fm, clicking on the Climactic logo, clicking on Episodes, and searching for Part 1, Violence and Environmental Activism. If you've already heard Part 1, welcome back, and let's get back into it. I, I wish
1: I, I could come up with a formula, but the best that I can think of is to study successful social movements of which there are many I would urge each of you to pick one movement that means something that carries your passion and find out how did it organize for the last 15 years or so I've been reading about the civil rights movement in the United States I, I was too young to participate in it and and so I, I came along at uh, after the Civil rights movement had transformed had become a, a black power movement, which ultimately did, was not a strategy for power or even a strategy it was more of a cultural strategy so after the the great victories of the civil rights movement and ending legal segregation, the movement foundered on exactly the points where where martin luther king had left off when when he died, which was economic justice. I went back and asked the question, how did the civil rights movement win the victories of ending legal segregation? That's not a small victory. And it turned out that there was a method they had learned and applied both from the black experience in the South during and especially after the Civil War, and also from the black culture, which is namely the the church cultures, rural southern churches. And this method they used in the Civil Rights Movement came directly from these rural black churches. And the the amazing, or rather the great discovery (laughs) I made, which I, I I didn't know, what probably most black people did know, was that women led the struggles because it was women who held the black churches together. So I made my own personal study and came up with the, the realization that there is a traditional organizing method that is very democratic and flows Out of women's experiences, it's non-hierarchical. And it was that that was adopted by the what you might call the shock troops of the Civil Rights Movement, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. That democratic method was then brought into the women's movement, and you found that women would sit in circles talking about their experience, and that was what built the women's movement. So there is a methodology, so to speak. And the methodology is never seen. It's not what gets the attention of the press or, you know, here in the United States, everybody knows that Martin Luther King had a dream and everybody knows about big demonstrations, but what went into building that movement at the bottom that's the methodology that we need to rediscover. Just as a aside, but an important one, in 1968, I was just this middle-class kid from New Jersey who crossed the river to New York and, and went to Columbia University. And I learned how to organize from red diaper babies. What are red diapers? They're children of communists and socialists and labor organizers. There were a lot of them at Columbia University, and when I got there, I wasn't one of these kids. But those kids knew that you had to build the base. You had to to talk to people. I myself was organized into the movement by a guy who knocked on my door and said, what do you think about Vietnam? And I said, well, I, I it seems like it's wrong, but I don't know much about it. And, and the guy turned out, his, his name was David Gilbert, and uh, he, he's uh, my mentor, and, and he wound up in prison for the rest of his life. That's another story. But he said, you know, I always thought about Germany during the Nazi era, and I wondered about all the Germans who went along, and I, I, I just don't want to be a good German. That's what, what David said to me. And that, that struck a chord. That, it, it's, that, that moment, I even remember now almost 60 years later, 55 years later, saying to myself, I don't want to be a good German. I don't want to let this country do these horrible things. And that was my, my impetus, my, my, my personal impetus. So part of the job is building relationships with people in which you talk to each other and you get to know each other and trust each other. One of the problems with social media is that we really don't know the people at the other end. We haven't sat down with them, you know. But of course, your advantages are very great in being able to get the word out. But still, there have to be these relationships built. So that's one aspect of movement building. But I would urge you, I'm just going to end this little piece now by saying I I would urge you to to really make a study of a mass movement that is successful and look at those methods and try to see if if any of that is applicable I assume that you want to build a movement to stop global warming now let me give you a, a really useful source It's a book that came out in 2016 by a couple of brothers named Paul and Mark Engler. And the book is called This is an Uprising. The book talks about two kinds of movements and goes into many, many examples, global examples of how these movements were built. One is what what they call mass momentum driven movements. The civil rights movement in the United States was uh, such a a, a movement. The the movement uh, against the war was a mass momentum driven movement. The women's movement in the US was a mass momentum driven movement. I'm sure in Australian history, there's many of these these momentum driven movements by momentum driven is that people join because it's what's happening. It captures the imagination if you're a young person you want to be there because that's what's happening i suspect that it's more than suspect i'm sure that the movement to stop global warming is going to be a mass momentum driven movement it will embody the, the cultural changes needed and people will join but the, the the brilliance of this book is it takes many examples from around the world and it gives them to us so that's one then the second aspect of the book is movements to transform political power. That's not necessarily the same. It's it's parallel to the mass social movements. And those tend to be much more structured. By structure, what I mean is that people lead their lives within organizations. The best historical example uh, that I can think of is in the United States, the labor unions. Whole families considered themselves union families, and the whole families would vote together, and all of their friends were union families. And so that's, what, that's considered to be a structured movement. The right has hit upon evangelical churches as the structure that people live their lives in. One of the problems with the Democratic Party now is we don't have structures that people live their lives in. You know, you're there's no you can't say there's a Democratic church or a demo, you know, the way you can say there's a Republican church and everybody in that church votes the same. It, it just it, 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 there, it, it doesn't work. We don't have it. We've lost the labor unions. The other example of uh, the, the evangelical churches are so rock solid that in 2016 80 percent of all evangelicals christians voted for trump and in 2020 it's possible that that number 80 percent went up so that's that's how powerful these structures that people lead their lives in. We don't have that yet. I don't know what they will be. I'm hoping that the movements like Extinction Rebellion may become structured in that people begin to lead their lives within it. And so that it then expands as a cultural movement. I don't know if that's happening or not. Anybody want to make a comment, a question? I, I'm struck by by the comments in answer to my question about Australia and what the problems are, many are contradictory. I'm just looking at all of them. Is there any way to test these ideas? That's the question that I would pose. How can you take your ideas and test them out? Like test in what sense? I guess people don't see the urgency of what's happening. That's an idea. So then can you go out, talk to people and find out if that's true or not? It probably is true.
2: There's a big difference, Mark, here. I mean, I'm 43, right? So I'm not the general, most of the class are not my age group, right? I'm i in between you and them. So I've, I've seen how all the social media elements changed a lot of this. And so there's been a lot more movement by the this, this younger generation that are all just finishing high school in the last year or two because of social media to get active and to get involved access to information you know the internet in general all of that but you've got a lot of people in my generation who are the end of the Gen X mob who mortgages uh, insecure work the media concentration here in Australia that Murdoch controls and does the same thing that he does with Fox in the USA and what he does in Britain right He's the anti-climate extremist, you know, rhetoric and then pro-coal, pro-gas, pro-fracking. The USA, Great Britain and Australia have the same problem right now and his name is Rupert Murdoch, right? And that is really what it boils down to because in Queensland, for instance, you only have Rupert Murdoch press. There's no, press in, no printed press in Queensland that Rupert Murdoch does not own, right? when it comes to sydney and melbourne the two biggest cities you're basically the right the we used to have a left wing right wing paper we don't even have that anymore right because a, a tv company bought out the left wing paper and now it's basically a right wing paper western australia is about the only place that has an independently owned newspaper called the west australian but it's a mining state they rely on mining out there for most of their income and they have a lot of fly-in fly-out uh, workers who come from the rest of the country fly into Perth and then fly out to wherever else they're going right now but Queensland has the same thing up north as well and a little bit in South Australia so you've you've managed to turn all those old the, the 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 kids of those war activists of those anti-protesting war activists who turned into greenies as well the kids of them have become basically engineered into into not fighting back anymore that's I mean I, I'm, I'm trying to simplify this as much as possible with giving enough detail but I've watched this change since I was 20 years old I've watched it change I've watched our labor unions go down the drain because of a conservative government John Howard in 1997 getting in and destroying our labor union movement now everyone's whinging about conditions and work conditions because of it it's a really complex situation in Australia but I always put it back to the way the media portray it.
1: Could labour unions be rebuilt?
2: People are trying to do it, you know, like like young people like Patrick and and a few others. I'm I'm seeing seeing that kernel grow again of people trying to get that that back because the pandemic, if anything, has shown so many people how insecure their life is under a conservative, ultra-right wing, ultra-far-right, free market, ultra-free market attitude. Right, Right? and then you've got people that have just watched all their houses burn down over summer. So there's a lot of farmers out there that have been on the side of the greenies for years purely based on the fact that they're watching it die in front of them, you know. And they're not greenies, they're not tree-hugging hippies. They're still conservatives, but they're very inclined to try and save their local area.
1: I have to laugh about Murdoch. Australia bequeathed Murdoch to us first to Britain and and then to us, and and he's like a plague in that Fox News really does get the lies out. But I have to say one thing that may amuse you. Uh, My book was published in 2009. My publisher was Rupert Murdoch. (laughs) maybe, Maybe they thought they'd make a bundle off it, but they didn't. No obviously we, we're gonna you know no social democracy wherever it exists in the world it, it exists because of labor because what essentially what social democracy is it's a taming of capital it, it's a way of imposing regulations, taxes is sharing the wealth. This is the product of labor movements. labor movements have always increased democracy. the decline of labor movements is a function of the triumph of capital but i think we have to see this as the situation getting so bad that labor in the broadest sense those who do not control capital those of us who do not control the government those of us who do not control the petrochemical industries we represent the majority we are the majority and, and, and so the only question then is, how do we organize ourselves? I mean, I know that sounds simple-minded, but it, that's it. How do we organize? The, the thing that, that strikes me as, as rather amazing is that you get idiotic people who don't believe in global warming and, and don't believe in the reality of, a, of public health. You get really stupid people who at least have figured out how to organize. So why can't smart people like us figure out how to organize? That's the question. And so here's the question I'll throw out there. And I want
3: the other students to also throw this out. But one of the case studies that we've looked at that I think I mentioned to you is the green Bands during the 70s where the construction laborers union really took on not only environmental issues but affordable housing issues, gender equity issues, even fought a battle or two around gay rights. But one of the things that was really tricky is Jack Mundy, was who was one of the, the charismatic leader of this movement, was very eager not to reproduce sort of the hierarchical power of capital. And so within his union, he instituted strict term limits. When he was done, he went back to literally running a wheelbarrow and a shovel. So there's this interesting tension. I guess the question I have for you is, you know, what do you think can be a robust way of organizing internally to avoid problems around hierarchy and, dare say, groupthink, but still maximizing the benefit of the energy and the enthusiasm, the unique skills of organizers? I hope that made sense.
1: My first thought is, is that the women's movement can teach us something, you know, because the, women, the women's movement really worked abolishing hierarchy. And they saw it as a part of the patriarchy. So to answer that question, I would go back to the women's movement. I really would. And I recently read this book. I mentioned Gloria Steinem's book, My Life on the Road. She ends the book talking about the knowledge that Native people in the United States have on how to live on the land and how to treat the land and also how to talk and to organize each other. And maybe there's something so fundamentally wrong with the way we deal with, we white people deal with each other. You know, I'm not trying to idealize anybody else, but I'm just saying because my experience is that, that being fucked up is not only white people, white people's problem. <laughs> It's everybody's problem in this society, but the ability to communicate or the ability to understand our relationship to nature—these these are things that that we've got to relearn. They probably exist somewhere. I was struck, John, by your tribute to the people who who lived in in New South Wales at the beginning of the class, and. And I wondered if I mean you're basically not Australian. You are not Australian. You're an American. But do you are you aware of the culture of those people and how they lived and what they can teach us about our future? I think there are some
3: parallels to the way we would think of, for example, Pueblo culture, Pueblo Native American culture, and the U.S. Southwest and Aboriginal culture. That said. There are very real and very valid concerns amongst Aboriginal people, and I don't think I'm speaking up of terms saying this, about who's able to make claims and representations about what that culture is, how much they want to share. I think there's been a very real concern about having control over their knowledge and their story. So one of the politics here is very rightly so if you want to speak to quote-unquote aboriginal issues or aboriginal perspectives on things you really have to do the work to make sure that that you find a, a proper representative that representative has been basically approved for sharing that knowledge and so in some ways i think that's a more advanced approach that said and i I welcome my actual Australian students to say this. There's definitely within popular culture been a resurgence of interest in Aboriginal relations with land. So Bruce Pascoe, who is not Aboriginal, wrote a a book called Dark Emu. This was, in some ways, a bit of a popularization of a book called Its Greatest Estate on Earth. Is that it? Y'all tell me if I'm getting it wrong. But there's sort of ways of looking at the colonial record of early contact with Aboriginal people and saying, wait a second, these are people who had a highly sophisticated culture, a highly sophisticated agriculture. It didn't look like European culture, so Europeans didn't recognize it as civilization. But when you read between the lines of the record that the colonizers left behind, you realize that there's an incredibly sophisticated, robust, resilient relationship between humans and country when Europeans showed up. So I probably don't have anywhere near as strong a sense as my students do for where those conversations are going. But I would say I do think that there's, there's a strong groundswell of sort of looking at those traditions. With that said, what did I get wrong, students and guests? What would we add to that analysis? Feel free to, to play stump the chump and tell me what I what I missed or I just did wrong. Anybody add to, to that conversation? I'll give you a chance to give a tag. Yeah, no, you're mostly right. I mean.
4: Like, there's been heaps of books, not just um, Dark Emu. There's another book called um, Tyson Yankapura, Sand Talk. book's called Sa- Sand Talk by Tyson Yankapura. Look it up, it's really great. Basically using, uh, talking to a whole bunch of Indigenous Elders. I haven't read it yet, I've read like the intro, but he basically is applying Indigenous knowledge in a general sense, talking with actual Elders around Australia and using their way of dealing with natural problems and using that to like analyze the current like socio-political state of the planet and actually using indigenous knowledge to answer the world's problems. Subtitles is also How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World, so that kind of sums it up. But
3: it's a totally first of its kind and it's really popular. Yeah, any, anybody else have anything they would like to add on this point?
1: Well, as a, as a non-Australian... I I would like to know why Australia and New Zealand have such different politics. Does that have something to do with women? Yeah, I'll jump in quickly on that because I've got a cousin in New Zealand. The
2: Maori actually managed to have a treaty with the white British government at one point. And uh, without going into the history of that, That sort of started a very different beginning. There's no treaty with the Indigenous people of Australia whatsoever. And just like the Native Americans in North America, all those sort of things have been broken by the whites here with the Indigenous, okay? So there's a whole stark element of racism entrenched into white Australian governance. I mean, you guys at the moment are dealing with systemic racism in the police force with Black Lives Matter and all of that. Ours is just as systemic whereas the Kiwis managed to actually get a lot of that out of their system
3: and incorporate a lot of Maori traditions into their society. Oh, hold on real quick. I'm going to, Zoe and Yona had a couple things to add. So
4: I actually just finished reading Dark Emu. So in it he talks a lot about Australian history was actually rewritten by the people that first came to Australia because they wanted to use it as kind of a justification for coming here and like, causing genocide and taking over the land, having called it like no man's land. that They were basically saying that the indigenous people didn't exist and weren't civilized. So yeah, it was not only just not recognizing it, but purposely not recognizing it.
1: So, so it's a straight colonial relationship, unless so in New Zealand. Yeah, Georgia actually had a, a comment about
3: that. Georgia, are you willing to, to share with us?
5: Yes, hi, uh, Australia. Is so much more diverse of the landscape that it was easy for them to access and invade. So the Maori people were, were, with New Zealand's very, very hilly, wet, they were easy to defend themselves and demand in policy making. Basically, that impacted their policies to this day, which is why we love Jacinta so much. But with Australia, they were hit extremely harder, more brutal, and genocide. So they could not force, respect of the colonizers. It's something that Australia really messed up.
3: One thing I thought I would like to hit you up to talk about a little bit as we close out is the concept of solidarity. A number of the students and their questions really zoomed in on one of the portions of your book that was really very powerfully influential for me, which this, this sort of critique of saying we, in SDS and The Weathermen, we thought that the spectacle was what was the basis of our success, but in retrospect, it was connections and solidarity. And I think, you know, this concept of not only having solidarity with other groups, but potentially putting other groups or other struggles, interests before your own, I think it's really powerful. I was wondering if you might be willing to speak to that as we're thinking about how we create solidarity on the things we need to do today.
1: Nobody's figured it out. <laughs> you know, there's, uh, even, to, even today, my, my wife was telling me that there's recriminations going back and forth about this election, you know, and, and, and nobody, nobody has figured out how to create coalition and how to actually practice solidarity. I think the the Weather Underground went overboard. We chose one branch of the black movement as the one we would be in solidarity with, but it's a much more complex issue than that. I, I have friends who died, and also others who are in prison to this day because of actions that they took. Which I, I consider myself to be a kind of an intellectual author of those actions, so and I, I don't think that the world is better for that. We tried, we haven't figured out how to to act in solidarity with those who are more privileged act with those who are less. We don't know yet how to do it and how to do it right. and I don't know. I, I do know that, that coalition between people from different places in society is going to be necessary for political transformation. For any mass movement, it has to be a coalition. But how to do that? I don't know, John. I wish I, I had a magic formula, you know. For myself, it, it's like something about compassion, Something about compassion. I I don't know what that is about compassion. But I think all all the the great philosophers and religious, spiritual, more advanced people had it right when they talk about compassion. I I don't know exactly what it is, but it's something about compassion. That's what throws me about the evangelical churches, because they feel that Trumpism is compassionate. I don't get it.
3: So let me ask this. Would it be fair to say that probably the most important part of creating solidarity in addition to compassion is simply trying to create solidarity?
1: Well, I think, I, I, I think Tama said it at the very beginning. Just listen. You know, if we can learn to listen, we'll do a lot better. You know, just learn to listen. People should see this movie the Glorious. part of it is is quite remarkable how, how she, her own background is very poor and very troubled family. And yet, she went to Smith College, which is an elite, at that time it was a women's college. I guess it still is. I don't know if it is or it isn't. But somehow or other, she had the capacity to listen. And so the movie is a lot about the non-white women In her life who taught her and the movie is is it's phenomenal in in that you see a person who's considered to be a leader who's spending most of her time listening to other people and learning and other types of people it's called the glorious
0: i really recommend this this movie and now here's some clips from the glorious film trailer You're Gloria Steinem. I am.
6: Taking to the road changed who I thought I was.
3: Travel is the best education. It's the only education, really.
6: I just returned from two years in India. The
5: stories (laughs) I saw and heard are amazing.
4: I'm going to try you out on a fashion assignment. If you won't
5: be alone have a fear of public speaking. What Dorothy and I have to say is too important
6: not to say it. This is the year of women's liberation. A simple right to reproductive freedom is basic.
3: We're here to make revolution, not just
6: dinner. We got to stop sucking and begin to bite. You're working from within the movement now. Change comes from within. Every minute is a chance
4: to change the world. Who are you, lesbians? What are you, the alternative?
6: I thought I would talk about why Harvard Law School needs women more than women need
3: it. How dare you? This
6: is going to be a disaster. Stop
5: the bus.
1: You're broken down and You know, it's really lovely to be able to do this and meet your students and realize that we're all grappling with these same questions. You know, the only thing I've come up with is, is to study the history of successful movements. To really dig in and, and learn why, what made them succeed? How did the women's movement succeed? You know, and how did the civil rights movement in the U.S. or, or how did the Maori in 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 New Zealand succeed? Or the workers in in Australia? How how did it work? And and if only we can learn those methods, some of them may be quite useful to us
6: yeah you know one th- i wanted to point it's I'm, I'm i just dropped off the kids and i'm back i know we're going over time but it's just so great to have you on and i thought yona had just asked a question that i could read out but or actually why don't you yona But while you're doing that one of the things that i learned actually speaking in new zealand was that a really nice thing to do when a guest comes and speaks to the class is to finish the class off by saying kind of what is it you're, what are you thankful for that you're taking away from this experience? It's a way of really having a moment to reflect. And it's also really nice as a guest coming in to hear that. So if you could all think about that for just a second, while Yona asks her question, that could be a really nice way of of finishing up. And you can post it in the chat, or you can say it personally to Mark. So Yona, why don't you? ask your question
5: so I just asked would you say that there are times in specific movements or parts of a movement where violence has indeed been necessary within like a revolution basically when trying to overthrow maybe like a capitalistic fascist kind of society like a government
1: I don't consider myself to be a revolutionary anymore I, I consider the goal to be a a, 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 a compromise between capital and labor. And that's what I call social democracy. And I think it's going to take a long struggle to get from where we are now, which is the victory of capital, where where things are more balanced. But I don't consider that to be revolutionary in the sense of apocalyptic. I don't think it'll happen all at once. It'll happen over a long period of time. And I think in the end, we'll learn to live with each other this may take generations so and maybe we don't have the time I don't know
5: um I asked because I know that in the suffragette movement in the UK at least whilst it was heavily like bourgeois white women it was quite violent and it's not discussed as much and there were times where there was like they were burning places and saying you know votes for women right to vote and all that and they got the right to vote and then there were the Stonewall Riots. There were so many movements around that time. So there was the Stonewall Riots that were quite violent as well. Yeah, the 1970s, thank you, John. So there are constant parts of particular liberation movements that have been violent. So would you still say that because of their success that sometimes violent tactics are actually necessary?
1: Sometimes, okay. sometimes, but at the, at the moment, uh, uh, the, I'm just thinking about my government, the government of the United States and, and the uh, various police forces and the right wing auxiliaries have such a preponderance of the means of violence that we have to we have to use some kind of jujitsu against them, use their own violence. You know, it, in, in other words, the only thing we have left is to confront violence with nonviolence at the moment.
5: Is that possible? I'm yes. Just
1: thinking, yes I think, I'm just
5: thinking between who gets to be
1: violent. You know, uh, it's great that, that that we're having this, that you asked that question. I'm going to uh, re- refer you to the work of Erica Chenoweth, Why Civil Resistance Works. She's at Harvard now, and you can find her all over the Internet. She has made a quantitative study of over 350 Mark, we
6: have read it in class. Oh,
1: you have?
6: You're the first person who turned me on to her. And then Extinction Rebellion just took off using, using those numbers and, and those ideas.
1: They, um, they use her 3.5% concept. But I, I'm more interested in, in, in the response to, to Yona's, question, Yona's question about what works. And, you know, yeah. and then another, another writer who just died... You can look up Gene Sharp's work. I've also uh, read some of his work. Yeah, yeah, There you go. Gene Gene Sharp's work has been used many places in the world successfully. Take a look at, at Engler and Engler. They 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 spend a lot of time talking about Erica Chenoweth's work and and Gene Sharp's. I guess my answer is it appears to me that nonviolence is working better than violence lately.
6: Guys, John had to leave because there's a fire alarm going on in his building. I don't want to end it, but maybe we can end it by doing that. You know, reflecting. You know, what is it you're leaving here with? What are what is maybe a new idea or something you're grateful for? Or and and like I said, please feel free to say it or chat it. Yeah, just feedback. I think is a really nice thing to give. So why don't we? Is that is that all right with you, Mark? Is that an okay way to to close oh, things I, off? I love it. I, I would okay. love to hear. It.
1: Great. Okay.
6: John's back. Apparently the, the alarm is done. Good. So yeah. So whoever wants to start things off.
4: Um. Yeah. Mark, thanks for coming along and talking to us. Really, really, really good book suggestions, firstly. Um, definitely going to be reading a lot of that. Yeah. No, I, I, I like your point about how stupid people have learned how to organize. And So it's, about, it's our turn, I guess. And I, I guess I'll, I'm taking that to heart.
6: People who hold uh, press conferences in front of landscapers you know, by accident learned how to organize so powerfully that they took over the U.S. government.
3: (laughs) I have been meaning to create a team's background that's actually the Four Seasons Landscaping Company. So it looks like that's where I'm having my meetings online.
6: If you haven't read that news yet, do look up Four Seasons Landscaping just to give yourself a little happiness.
2: I was going to say it was a real pleasure to to hear from it it's as some of the comments have said it's not often people in your position talk to students and put your face to a lot of it anymore most people have gone underground and stayed underground and for a lot of good reasons too you know i just i just wish you all the best with the coming uh election nightmare that's going to flow on for weeks you know it's it's not over yet and so i I really do honestly as someone, as you're in America, I wish you the best with, with all of it. I really do.
1: Thank you, Dan. It's, it's a pleasure to meet you. You're a historian, is that right? Yeah, I'm doing politics and
2: international relations as a major and also history as a major. So, But I've already done 25 years of reading a lot of it, which is why I've got so much to say on all of this, to be honest. It all started with military history as a teenager, put it that way. So. Yeah. Well, well aware of your your wars over there. Don't worry. Uh.
1: That, that's interesting because Erica Chenoweth started out as a Marine, a U.S. Marine, and 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 was not at all uh, interested in in uh, nonviolence. But it, but her study led her to it, and she's she's a quantitative analyst, so the numbers do count.
3: Well, I will say this. You always pushed my thinking, and one of the things you always push me on is not just how I think, but how I approach learning. And that approach of listening, the approach of, of compassion, it's one of those lessons that I have to keep putting into practice, but I'm really grateful. For
1: so, so do I. I. You know, I talk a lot too much. Really, see this movie. The Glorious and read her book. You know, I'm amazed how, how good this this movie is. It's a mainstream movie, The Glorious. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. it it's, it's literally a feminist movie.
6: We need a lot of those.
1: <laughs> anyway, thank you very much for, for, for inviting me. I really appreciate it. I miss you guys so bad. It, it, it's It's a pleasure to spend a couple hours with you.
3: Same,
6: same, same.
3: <laughs> All of our love to you. Good day. There.
1: good day, good night, whatever.
0: <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed hearing from Mark Rudd as much as I have in bringing it to you. And a massive thanks to John and Tema for allowing us to share this with you. Check the show notes for links to learn more about Mark, the SDS, the weathermen, and the tumultuous 70s and their cautionary tales. You can find links in the show notes to the course from UNSW that this panel was part of, and this adaptation has been from the Climactic Collective, the podcast network by and for Australia's climate community. My name is Mark Spencer, and I'm the publisher and founder of the Climactic Collective, and I'd love to hear your feedback. What did you think of this two-part series? What will you take away from it? You can give the show a rating and review, and we greatly appreciate it if you do, from Climactic.fm. Just click on Leave a Review, or find us on Podchaser.com. That's the IMDb for podcasts. This is our first release of the new year. Welcome to 2021. Thank you for joining us, and if you enjoyed this, you've got a wealth of other content to find at Climactic.fm. The Collective is home to many other shows and we welcome new members. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, just get in touch at hello at climactic.fm and find and follow us on social media where we're at climactic show. Thank you for choosing to spend your time with us. Here's to making the 2020s a decade of action on the climate crisis, which we know is gonna take some massive acts of organizing. So I hope you've taken something away from this. Thanks again, stay safe and take care of each other in these climactic times.